Hey talkers, welcome to Keep Talking Podcast. Keep Talking is the best platform for you to reach an advanced level of English by practicing every day and also connect with a global community. This podcast is a mix of our Instagram lives and IGTV videos, along with other recorded content. Sometimes we just give tips on how to improve your English, and other times we talk about a wide variety of topics, sometimes with special guests. Most of the episodes are in English, some are a mix of English and Spanish, and in a few we only speak Spanish. I hope you enjoy, and remember to follow us on Instagram at keeptalkingco, or check out our website, keeptalking.co, to join our community and learn more about how we can help you. What's up, talkers? We are here with Doctor, with Dr. <laughs> Faisal Al-Mutairi. Say hello to everyone, Faisal. <laughs> Uh, hi everyone, hi Keep Talkers. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Faisal. And Faisal has been a friend of mine for a long time, about mm, five or six years now. Six years, what was it, maybe 2015 that we met? Yeah, I think it's 2015 or late 14, something like that. Okay, yeah, because you came to the U.S., what, you, well, was it 2013 that you were Yeah, I came here? to the U.S. summer of 2013. Summer yep. of 2013. Okay, yeah. So so we've known each other for a while, but I just started calling him Dr. Faisal because he just finished earning his Ph.D. So let's give him a big round of applause. Give yourself a round of applause. Too. There we go. <laughs> Congratulations again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sean. Felicitaciones, as they say in Spanish, and mabruk, as they Mucho say in Arabic. Gracias, there it say. is, okay, yes. Yeah, yeah, we can speak some, a little bit of Spanish. Let's speak I cannot a promise. <laughs> I cannot promise much, but yeah. No, that's all right. That's awesome, man. Yeah, Faisal, like many people living in the U.S., has been working on his Espanol poquito a poco ever since he moved here. So, yes, yeah, slow progress. Yeah, exactly, man. Um, yeah, and so um, I'm excited because we've been planning to do this for a while now, like at least a month, but we wanted to talk about the process of, of getting a PhD in the U.S., you know, as an international student. I know a lot of you, our listeners, are interested in that. Um, and then I also want to talk about things like data science and artificial intelligence because Faisal is an expert in, in data science, machine learning, all this stuff. And so what I'm planning to do, we'll see how this podcast flows. It's going to be an open conversation, but is kind of have the first part dedicated to talking about how Faisal you know, got his PhD, maybe giving some advice for other people who want to study in the U.S., and then the second part, talking a little bit more just about data science itself. I'll probably ask some stupid questions, and he'll have some good answers to my stupid questions. So, um, what do you think? You ready to do this? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, no, I think that's a good uh, structure, and yeah. yeah. So we'll, we'll get lost and go off on tangents I'm, anyways. You know? I'm, so. I'm pretty sure we will do that, because I always digress, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be fun, man. Yep. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, why don't you just, you know, give give everyone a background on yourself, you know, um, tell us a little bit about where you grew up, if you'd like, um, you know, when you decided to come to the U.S., tell us a little bit about yourself, however you'd like to do so. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I am Faisal, mm -hmm. um, and I grew up, uh, I was born and grew up in Saudi Arabia in a city called Arras. It's a it's relatively a small uh, city, about like 130 uh, to like 150k people. Mm -hmm. And 
uh, I also did, yeah, I finished, you know, all the school. I finished high school and then I did my undergrad in electrical uh, engineering, uh, communications, uh, you know, uh, communications and, and uh, electronics specifically. So from there towards the end, I knew that I wanted to do... Um, I was I was kind of confused like whether to work for uh, industry or uh, you know uh, right yeah, yeah like a, proceed with my uh, studies mm -hmm. and I did work for a few months but I th then I realized okay this is not for me <laughs> yeah working sucks yeah, yeah exactly uh -huh. not for me I want to like uh, keep going and uh -huh. you know uh, get my uh, basically or go to grad school that that was the mm -hmm. decision. And and then yeah, the U.S. was like a natural uh, choice for me. Uh, I did think about Canada for a bit, but mm -hmm. it was just more options here, mm -hmm. and like I know more schools here, mm -hmm. so that's how I ended up here. Mm -hmm. Well, talk to me a little bit about that. I don't think we ever talked about this before about you know choosing the U.S. instead of Canada. Um, I guess what made you. What made those two countries the top two destinations you were thinking of? And then what made you decide to come to the U.S. instead of Canada? Uh, yeah, for sure. Because, so first I came to get my master's, right? That was the, the first goal or the main mm -hmm. goal. Uh, however, I had like back in my mind, I kind of knew that, okay, I also want to get like my PhD eventually, but let's mm -hmm. start with my master's and see how it goes. Mm -hmm. So, basically the choice for me was I want to go somewhere where the main language is English because mm -hmm. this is what yeah. we studied. Like I studied as a second language. This is uh, the language I basically they used as for like, uh, you know, the university and during the undergrad. Right, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I decided, okay, I, I kind of, between those, you know, the Canada and the U.S. are... Similar in a sense because it, it, the system is very different than the UK. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, PhD in the, or like grad school in general in the UK is very different. It's more, mm. yeah, it's more like you do research right away. You don't do a lot of coursework. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's very different. At least in science and engineering, I cannot speak for all the majors. Huh. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so that's how I kind of like ended up thinking between Canada and the US because that was the system that I was, um, you know, I thought that would more work better for me to basically first take some classes, learn from the class, mm -hmm. and then start doing research. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. Okay, so that's something to keep in mind for people listening. If you're thinking about studying in the UK versus the US or Canada, in the UK is more research-focused right at the beginning. Right. Yeah. Whereas the U.S. and Canada is more focused on doing classes as opposed to doing your own research. Yeah, you do a, you do a graduate level classes, so very mm -hmm. high level classes, which will help you to do the research basically. Okay. And I'm I'm biased with the system. I, mm -hmm. I basically prefer that system because I think you you do need the fundamental rather mm -hmm. than studying on your own to, mm -hmm. do, to do research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, it <laughs> definitely seems like it, right? <laughs> I mean, it seems like for most of us, we wouldn't want to just start doing our own research without knowing the basics. 
in some sort of, you know, like a, yeah. a 101 type class. When we say 101, we mean like a introductory level class on something. But right. uh, that's interesting. Okay. I'm sure, I'm sure the system in the UK will teach you, you know, to be um, independent, an mm -hmm. independent researcher from the beginning. Yeah. Which, which is a, a thing that might take a while for you to, to gain, maybe mm -hmm. in the US. But overall, I, yeah, I, I think that's, that I prefer that, that system in the US. Mm -hmm. Okay, very cool. Yeah, and so then in deciding between the US and Canada, um, I guess, well, I mean, I'm one who, <laughs> I, I've, yeah, I've never spent much time in Canada. And by not much time, I mean, I've been to the airport in Toronto, like twice. So like 16 yeah. total hours in Canada, you know, but it always seems really cool. I mean, you've, well, I hear Toronto is like a super great city, right? But where were you thinking about going in Canada? Did you have like a place in mind or a city or a university in mind? I had some friends who, um, I think they were, I forgot now, like, um, I think they were like somewhere near Toronto, but I mm -hmm. forgot exactly where. Okay. Mm -hmm. I definitely talked with them, um, and then I talked with other friends in the US. But I think I, I didn't know much about Canada because from the beginning, during my, when I was doing the research, from the beginning I, I decided that, okay, I'm going to the US. Mm -hmm. So I did yeah. most of my research where to go in the US. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, what made you decide on, on Minnesota? The coldest of all cold, lo más frío, see? ¿sí? Mucho frío, you know mucho frío, right? Yeah, I know Spanish. mucho frío. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's because, so I, I uh, again, I'm from Saudi Arabia, so I... It's not live, very cold there. <laughs> which can get, like, basically in the summer up to 50 Celsius. Yeah, yeah. So, and uh -huh. that's what they use, I assume. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, most people most, familiar with yeah. Celsius. So, like, 50 degrees Celsius, you know, 50 grados Celsius, centigrados. I can't even remember in Spanish if it's, I think they say centigrados Centi instead yeah. of Celsius, but who Celsius. cares? They get the point. Anyway, go on, it's yeah. out there. And then, when I looked uh, up Minnesota, it, uh, I found out that it gets minus, uh, minus 50 in the winter. And uh -huh, I was like, yeah. yeah, hell, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I love that, man. Um, okay. But, but seriously, I think it was, for me, um, it was exciting. Okay, like, it snows there. Uh, so mm -hmm. it was appearing to me as a... Now I see it as a disadvantage. <laughs> right, yeah. But back, the, uh, back then I see it as, a, okay, this is cool. This is yeah. exciting. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, you could live there. It snows. It's beautiful, you yeah. know. Mm -hmm. Well, that's something that, like, people, you know, and you've been here long enough now. You've been here for, like, eight years, right? So yeah. once you've been to Minnesota for a while, you're like, okay, yeah, we can stop with the snow. I don't need any more. But, like, every winter, for the first couple weeks of snow, for most of us, it's like, Oh, yeah, it's beautiful. Snow, nieve. That's snow in Spanish, right? It, mm -hmm. it, it looks really cool. And it, you know, it's, it's nice to have that change of season. But once it's been more than like two or three weeks of the winter, you're like, yeah, okay. I want to go back to Saudi Arabia or <laughs> wherever, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yep. Yeah, okay. But that makes sense that that was something that attracted you at the beginning, something totally new, you know? Um, okay, yeah. All right, yeah. Even, even when I talk with my family now, they... Mm -hmm. Every time they see the snow, I'm like very annoyed with it, especially if it's like towards the, especially if it's like in May or April. Yes. But for them, like it's okay, all is exciting. Whenever mm -hmm. I send pictures yeah. or mm -hmm. BC videos. 
Well, that's because they haven't stepped off the plane enough in the negative 50-degree <laughs> weather. Like, sure, it looks beautiful in the pictures, right? But, but it doesn't feel good. Yeah. No, it does not feel good, right? And for anyone listening, you know, from Suramerica or wherever, if you've never been to a really cold place like Minnesota, I'm warning you, okay? We're warning you. Dr. Faisal and I are giving a warning, okay? It's a Minnesota and other places like this are beautiful places to be in the summer and even in the spring and the fall. But if you come here in the winter... Be careful. It is very, very, very cold. And you're going to get off the plane and want to go right back to where you came from. <laughs> so that's our Minnesota cold weather warning. Um, but yeah, okay. So um, you came to the University of Minnesota then, and that's where we met each other. Well, I wasn't at the University of Minnesota, but we met through, you know, a mutual friend, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> he's laughing because our mutual friend is just a really funny, interesting person. I think that's why you're laughing, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good stuff, man. Um, I guess, talk to me a little bit more about what it was like right at the beginning, you know, because Minnesota is a place, well, we have this thing where we say Minnesota nice, like people from Minnesota, like act very nice on the surface, you know, we, we treat people very respectfully, we're very kind, but I found that getting to know, like really making true friends with people from Minnesota is a very difficult thing sometimes. Because, uh-huh. yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So, yeah. how was it at the beginning? Yes, yeah, so it was um, basically I didn't know about it until mm-hmm. I got here. You can tell that I did enough research, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, you're a research expert. You were supposed to do the research, yeah, so yeah. yeah. Uh, I just didn't want to take the you know the mystery part away. Mm-hmm. by researching everything. But yes, yeah. so yeah, coming here, I didn't know that. Basically, that was a thing, you know, like about like Midwestern or Minnesotans yeah. in particular. So it was nice, like everyone was nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the beginning, it was really nice. Yep. You know, everyone is nice. Uh, they treat you well, you know. Um, you know, for example, at the university, everyone is nice when they when you go to the offices, you, you want something. Or even yeah. meeting people like in social settings is all, uh, always good because people are nice. Mm-hmm. But with time, you slowly realize that thing you, you are talking about. Mm-hmm. It's really hard for people to actually open up and, you know, want to be friends. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that was really, that was tough uh, during the first year. So most of, because that was a tricky year uh, or a tricky time for me because I was Im- trying to improve my English. Mm-hmm. I had a decent English before coming mm-hmm. just because I did school undergrad in, in English, right? Yeah. But mm-hmm. still, I was shocked when I come, came here, right? That was mm-hmm. mostly like textbook English. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So coming here, yeah, definitely it was tough to, you know, get, get into like a deep friendship with, uh, you know, Minnesotans or with the locals. Mm-hmm. And most uh, part of it because I was also studying English. I was taking English classes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you take classes with international uh, right. students, right? Mm-hmm. Which, you know, it's fun because they are from different countries. Yeah, it's cool to meet people, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But it's always, like, super easy to uh, fall into the trap where you end up with uh, people who speak the same language, you know. Yes. People yeah. who speak Arabic, for example. Mm-hmm. And because it's, you know, comfortable, it's nice, you know them, they know you. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Screw this English, let's speak in Arabic. Let's <laughs> speak in yeah. Arabic, exactly. And yeah. then you... You know, you're in a new place, you know, you try to find people. Mm-hmm. So that was definitely uh, not easy 
for the first year. Mm-hmm. And then the second right. year, you know, when I started the actual program, it was still, until today, it's still uh, not a, an easy thing. Mm-hmm. But I think I understand it now. Yeah. And that makes it, you know, easier to basically, you know, you know how to approach people, you know how people think, mm-hmm. like more than mm-hmm. a few years back. Yeah. So you feel like obviously over time you've gained an understanding of how America, just how Americans are, how Minnesotans are, like how we are as a people, you know, how to, how to approach us, how to interact with us. Yeah. What yeah, cultural stuff, you know? Yeah, definitely. The cultural stuff. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you, you understand more, but, but definitely in the beginning it's, you're excited. You bring this like good energy because yeah. you just moved here. Yep. So that, that was honeymoon the, phase. The honeymoon phase. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, and then, so what happened at the end of the honeymoon, right? Like, how, how long did your honeymoon phase last? <laughs> um, I mean, when I was in Jordan, for example, I did a study yeah. abroad program in Jordan when I was in college for a semester, and my honeymoon phase was like six days. You know, oh, like, wow. it wasn't even a week. Like, I like I, I loved it, you know, like, this is the best place in the world. And then on, like, the seventh day, I was like, yeah, I should probably go back home. I don't know if I can fit in very well here. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, um, you had the repairs experience, basically, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I honestly don't remember exactly, but I think for me, I, definitely because I came came here in the summer, mm-hmm. like June around June or in in the, the May, best time, the yeah. best time. Definitely, yeah. I'm pretty sure it lasted for more than the summer. I think mm-hmm. even I remember I was like really excited in the first during the mm-hmm. first winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, I did. I did a really good choice that I definitely recommend people to do when mm-hmm. they come from abroad. Okay, because usually only like young people do this mm-hmm. but because I came here after undergrad mm-hmm. but I still uh, did it and I know some people who also uh, around mm-hmm. my age when I came here and they, they do the same yeah uh, which is staying with the host family yes mm-hmm. that was that was definitely it's definitely you know um, can be hard depends on like what do you want or mm-hmm. what do you want to do because you you know you live with the family so definitely there are some certain things mm-hmm. that you yeah. you have to be aware of or like respectful yeah. uh, mm-hmm. respectful yeah. uh, don't do anything stupid you know <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly mm-hmm. but you know with with the time and all that like when do you come back and uh, depends on, and every house has its role right so mm-hmm. it's not like you're renting you're you have to follow the house rule that, yeah. that's what I'm trying to uh, mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. say uh, but it was very very worth it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm still uh, friend with them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They mm-hmm. actually move. Uh, part of them moved to New Zealand, and I'm still like uh, friend okay. with them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just been a great experience to introduce me to um, the culture, certain things. Uh, I think I was adventurous en- uh, enough to explore mm-hmm. by myself. Yes. But mm-hmm. it's in some parts it was also convenient. You know, they took me to the store to get like a SIM card and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from there you also do some like family stuff. So you see, the, for example, mm-hmm. during the holidays, mm-hmm. I, I didn't appreciate it until I left the families. Mm-hmm. Like you do the Thanksgiving with them, for example, mm-hmm. right? So they celebrate... Uh, whatever holidays they celebrate and you can see that you can celebrate with them mm-hmm. uh, and definitely after I left the family and then you know started living in apartments then you can really feel like oh yeah I am an international here, be- mm-hmm. here because during the holiday season like it's a ghost town but mm-hmm. you, you have to mm-hmm. uh, basically okay. be like a proactive to find yeah. like 
to find people to celebrate to with, do. Basically. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, yeah. Well, and actually, how did you find that family? How did you meet them? Uh, hostfamily.com or something. Really? Okay, I'm, yeah. I'm giving like free advertising. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this well, is I, not a paid advertisement yeah. for a host family, but maybe on second thought they can like advertise with us. And, yeah, you know, but I think, yeah. I, think that, I remember there were like multiple uh, websites yeah. to do that. If you have just host families in the US, you, you will find the top one or two okay. yeah, websites. Cool. You can go from there. I'm pretty sure now they are like maybe the people use, use them less. Mm-hmm. Because I know also like some English programs they offer that they okay. offer to match you with a host family. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I, I didn't do it through any program. I just contacted to contacted them and mm. yeah, which is funny because I contacted two families and I started talking with one of them and then I, f- I forgot the details. But then ended up uh, the the first one kind of I think told me to talk to the other one or something, mm-hmm. and I came here and I. I ended up with the second family, right, I yep. talked to. I came yep. here and I also became a friend and we spent some time with the first family I talked to because mm-hmm. they yeah, were yeah. friends, basically. Okay, that's awesome. <laughs> okay, yeah. All right, yeah, so that's interesting. Hmm. Well, good advice for everyone. Yeah, find find a host family. I mean, honestly, this is a piece of advice that I can give in general is that, you know, anyone listening to this who wants to, well, travel to the U.S. or any other English-speaking country, it is oftentimes harder than you think to find people to practice English with every day if you're just living by yourself or, you know, if you try yeah. to find an apartment. So any way that you can either live with a host family or live with... And honestly, honestly after coming here and seeing, you know, life in mm-hmm. more details and, you know, yeah. I have more understanding, honestly, it doesn't have to be a host family. You can just try to find a roommate. Uh, and then make sure that they don't speak your language. They don't even have to be, they don't have <laughs> yep. to be, uh, you know, uh, locals, but mm-hmm. if, if they are locals, if they are from the same state, it will be good for you, you know, to connect with them. You might end up being like really good friends and then you, you mm-hmm. can like spend time even with their families. And, yeah, you know? yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it's, it's immersion. Any way that you can do it is to try to get that immersion. Um, Talk to me actually a little bit about English. I don't think we ever talked about, you know, your English and, um, well, what is it like in, in Saudi Arabia or, you know, the part of Saudi Arabia where you're from? When did you start studying English? What was it like in school? Did you hate it? <laughs> uh, so we started studying English in middle school. So mm-hmm. that's like seventh grade. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so through high school, right? Yep. But... Yeah, let me just put it this way. I finished high school without being able to, you know, talk a proper conversation. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about where I was in Spanish, too. Exactly. Yeah. So you can solve the exams. I think I got, like, it was a standardized exam uh, mm-hmm. the last year of high school or last semester of high school. I think I got a full mark mm-hmm. or something. Okay. But mm-hmm. but still, like, I cannot. I could write paragraphs, you know, mm-hmm. about certain things. I had some vocabularies, right, to do that, mm-hmm. but in general, like, speaking was not good at all. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't think anybody comes out of a high school program speaking a language, a second language well. It just never works. What, exactly. what is it about, what are they doing, like, how, how did they teach in Saudi Arabia? What were the classes like when you were taking English classes, if you remember? Mm, 
I remember like one good example actually not. Uh-huh. Uh, so one I think it was the text the problem was the textbooks mm-hmm. because uh-huh. one uh, teacher in high school second year if I remember correctly he basically just abandoned the book mm-hmm. the textbook and started giving us uh, vocabulary okay like every day we would remember and, this uh, vocabulary yeah. and then we have to use them in a sentence basically yeah that was very effective I, I like it, man. Yeah, I like was, this professor because yeah, that's the yeah. way that I teach as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, like, connect us. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that was also like the same thing when, when I took uh, English classes in the US. They always have you as groups and you talk to your, you know, uh, peers in classes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the other than that, uh, teacher in he taught us one or two semesters. It was just the textbook. And they focus a lot. I don't know about other countries, but mm-hmm. in Saudi Arabia, they used to. Probably it's different now. They used to focus a lot on grammar. Mm-hmm. I think that was that was a big issue. It's so overrated, man. Yeah, Let yeah. me go on a one-minute anti-grammar rant here. <laughs> yeah, because you know, and we just did. A, I did a recent short podcast episode on why vocabulary is more important than grammar. But here's the point, everyone listening. If you can know all of the proper grammar in the world, in any language, in English in this case, but if you don't know enough of the basic vocab about whatever subject you want to talk about, you won't get anywhere. Vocabulary is always more important than grammar. If you don't know proper grammar, that's okay. Yeah, you'll sound like you're not, you know, they'll know you're not a native speaker. You might sound a little bit rude sometimes, but you will be able to get your message across. Learn vocab. Focus on learning vocab and then you can pick up more grammar naturally as you have more conversations with native speakers, you listen to them speak. So don't do a lot of grammar classes. It's fine to do a little bit, but really focus on your vocabulary. So props to your professor for being like that. <laughs> um, sorry, I just totally cut you off and yeah. went on a grammar rant. But No, no, I, I really like the way you put it in terms of, yeah, you will learn the grammar naturally because mm-hmm. once you see, and I feel that with Spanish actually, mm-hmm. once you uh, see more sentences, you kind of start picking up the grammar without even studying it, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. that, that's the, probably the, the proper way to do it. And then you can, like, later on, once you are, you know, intermediate level, you can take an advanced gra- grammar class. There is nothing wrong, wrong with that, mm-hmm. you know? Right. No, yeah, I agree 100%. Okay, so I mean, it sounds like in Saudi Arabia too, it was, you know, at least where you're from, it was sort of similar to the way I see most high schools in the U.S. teaching Spanish and other schools around the world teaching English, where there's just a lot of focus on, you know, grammar, but they don't really get you speaking very much. They don't do a lot to improve your vocabulary or to get you speaking a lot. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's different now. They even started... Uh, English from the third grade, or not, mm. if not even the first, I think these years. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty sure it's different now if someone's listening from Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh-huh. yeah, but I think it, that's how it used to be a uh, certain amount number of years ago. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. okay, I see. Yeah, and well, so then in terms of learning English, um, you know, you said you did your your undergrad there in English, you know, like in a lot of other countries in Saudi Arabia, yeah. your courses were in English, the right. textbooks were in English, right? Which is, it's got to be tough, man. Um, um, not in engineering, and I, uh, I can no? yeah, talk more about I that. I can't understand engineering terms in English. <laughs> um, I think, um, specifically, I was doing electrical engineering yeah. or communication engineering. Mm-hmm. 
and or telecommunication probably communication people mix it with you mm-hmm. know, yeah mm-hmm. um, the other kind of communication but um, it was you know mostly you know you just need the vocabulary it's not you don't have to learn a lot of new vocabulary in each mm-hmm. class so there are some uh, let's say fundamental vocabularies that you have to learn mm-hmm. and then from there it's just math basically Hmm. So it's mm. you are just writing the equations in English. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, now. so it, yeah. it's a lot of yeah. So once all of the exams, we did have we did ha- write reports, we did labs, we did everything, and some of the instructors uh, or professors they didn't ha- they didn't speak Arabic. Mm-hmm. So English wasn't pro- uh, for the most cases wasn't their first language, but uh, neither. Hmm. Uh, Where were they, where were they from, for example? That's interesting. I think we had a professor from uh, Pakistan. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and then th- that's that's the professor I had. Yeah. So they don't speak Arabic either, right? Yeah. So they had to speak in English. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. And and then basically, you know, the the whole class was in English, right? Mm-hmm. But then this is interesting actually, because for me, I. I wasn't really into English TV. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Just, you know, minimum amount. Like, I wasn't really, you know, watching a lot of movies. I was watching movies, but, like, just n- not a lot. Basically. It's probably good. You probably kept yeah. a couple more brain cells <laughs> yeah. from not watching English language movies. Uh, anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, now I, I do, but... Yeah. Oh, <laughs> but now, back, now you blew it, man. But, All right, go like, on. <laughs> but back then. Yeah. Uh, which was, like, really interesting to me, because I thought my English was good until I came here. Uh-huh. You see what we I mean? always think that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Uh-huh. So that was, and this is also probably another advice. And then before coming here, like a few months before coming here, you know, I was okay, maybe I should just watch more TV. Mm-hmm. And then I started watching Friends, you mm-hmm. know, and, you know, other comedy TV shows that I forgot now. But mm-hmm. definitely I watched Friends multiple times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was really helpful. Mm-hmm. That was very helpful to get away from, you know, the. More like a yes. professional or like formal English or like... Mm-hmm. Uh, 100%. Yeah. yeah, 100%. It's oftentimes better to watch... Uh, without going into too many details, yeah, it's better to watch mm-hmm. shows or to watch movies, sometimes with subtitles if you need them, but hear more of the actual spoken language rather than just the way it's taught in books and in classrooms. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, okay. And you can also, like, kind of assess your English when you watch them. You can see your understanding. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's usually it usually sucks, too, because, like, you think you're understanding everything, <laughs> and then you're like, oh, my God, I don't understand anything. Let me roll that back again. <laughs> I remember that would happen, like, when I was studying Arabic, and I would watch some Egyptian movies because, in you know, in the Arab world, Egypt is, like, the... It's like the Hollywood, Hollywood of the Arab yeah. world. You know, they have all the movies, right? And so I remember when I was learning Arabic when I was about 20 years old, I would watch, I got like, they were like on actual like DVDs, right? This is the DVD era, you know, it's like 2008 oh, yeah. or whatever, 2009. So I'm like buying these DVDs from these weird online sites and they're like getting delivered to me. So I had like... Ten of these Arabic movie DVDs. What were they called? Like Wahab min al-Nas. And there was one movie called like Al Jazeera. Not the not the channel, but like a movie, an yeah, Egyptian yeah. movie called Al Jazeera. I watched that one like ten like times. Like Adil Imam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't remember all the actors' names, but I remember watching these movies. And um, I think part of it too was they were from. There's a part of Egypt that's called like 
Is it a Saeed, maybe? I don't know. Uh, it's, yeah, um, Bur Saeed. Bur Saeed? Okay, yeah. yeah. Anyway, but they have this weird accent that's even, like, harder to understand than, you know, the regular Egyptian accent. We're way off on a tangent now. But I remember watching these movies. I'm like, what the F, man? I've been studying Arabic a lot, and I even thought that I could speak well now. Why do I only understand, like, 2% of this? What language are they speaking? But it was it was Arabic. And so yeah. you experienced kind of the same thing? Um, or were you a little bit more confident when you started watching Friends and other shows? I think I would say, like, a little bit more confident than, mm-hmm. than this Better person. Than yeah. Better than 2%. Better than 2%. Three and a half. Three and a half percent, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and the reason why I was going to say that, uh, Arabic, Arabic can be very different from a dialect to another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe Spanish is in between English and Arabic to some extent. You yeah. can tell me more about that. But Well, Spanish is not... Okay, so I mean, Arabic is maybe like the king of all languages in terms of having the most difficult to understand dialects. Yeah. Like, there are probably... Okay, well, every country has its own dialect, as you know, but... Even within there, the country. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But there's, pro- there's kind of like five main ones, you know. These are for like... The, the 2% of our Spanish-speaking listeners who will have interest in traveling to the Middle East, but bear with us here. So <laughs> we've kind of got like, you know, probably five main dialects in my opinion. You've got the Khaliji, the Gulf dialect. Yeah, the Gulf, yeah. I've never the thought about Sh- like, you know, classify them or group okay, them, but yeah. yeah, the Gulf, I would say the Egyptian, I yeah, don't know. Yeah, that's uh, definitely its own. Definitely yeah. one. The Shami. The Shami, yeah, the Shami. And maybe like the... North, North Africa, yeah, you know. Uh, yeah. Tunisia, uh, Morocco, exactly, yeah. yeah, and then maybe Iraqi is its own one as well. Iraqi, yeah, definitely they have their own accent. Yeah. Uh, they have they have some common, you know, structure, you know, in this in a sense to Khaliji, but yeah. but it, it it it's also very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. When when I divide it like that, I'm just like being the stereotypical American, just like dividing things up into sectors, even when it shouldn't be. You know what I mean? The same way the U.S. like divided up the Middle East into countries that don't make any sense. So, even me as an American, I'm just being an imperialist in the way that I think about the um, the accents or dialects of Arabic. So I apologize for that. But um, yeah, I mean, the point is, well, okay, well, back to Spanish. I mean, Spanish I would say is not as bad as Arabic in terms of the different accents. Yes, there are yeah. different accents, but they're under they're more understandable to each other. Like people from Colombia are always going to be able to understand people from, you know, Chile. Chile. I mean, in Chile, they have some crazy words in Chile, but they understand each other. You know, Venezuela, Mexico, in, they understand people from Spain very easily, even though it's a very different accent. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. 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 So. No, uh, yeah, I think yeah, Arabic is, even if you speak the language, sometimes you don't understand. You, you have to find a common, basically, ground. Yeah. So on mm-hmm. purpose, you would kind of tone it down to yeah. your direct or accent down to yep. to be closer to the formal, in a sense. But exactly. we never speak the formal when we chat. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah, I think I think that's the main idea. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. Um, well, yeah, let's, let's switch gears and then talk specifically about PhD. So let's talk about getting your PhD. So... Tell me about how that um, started. Um, yeah, what? Um, tell us about the PhD. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I briefly mentioned that you know when I finished my undergrad, I was thinking, okay, I don't know if I should like go work in industry or mm-hmm. get my you know uh, graduate degree. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
and I, I realized I was leaning more towards you know studying more because I, I've been always drawn to research, towards research and mm-hmm. have a deep understanding yeah. uh, of things. Mm-hmm. But then just to convince myself, you know, I worked for a bit and then I realized, okay, no, this is this is boring, you know, I mm-hmm. need, yeah. I need uh, something. Work sucks, yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, and I know like some people, for example, in engineering, they, they when they finish their, you know, bachelor degree, they just like to start to implementing stuff, especially like in electronics. They, they like to have fun with, you know, designing things, implementing things. And that, I wasn't that kind of person. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that's that's basically how I thought. Okay, I definitely want to get my, uh, you know, graduate degree. Mm-hmm. You know, starting with a master at least. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And from there, like I know, basically the main. And specifically coming to the US was the main goal definitely was for sure advancing my degree. But also that was not the only goal. I, you know, uh, have been always like adventurous and, you know, had mm-hmm. like, yeah. you know, curiosity to, mm-hmm. you know, what's going to on. come and see the snow. and Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Or like just, you know, experience a different culture yeah. and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, go, go out of the country and see... Uh, you know, a different life. Mm-hmm. So that was also like a main motivation for yep. me, not only, you know, the, the degree itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, which I think, yeah, is equally important because you grow you grow up in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not only in your A career. little, you know, poquito a poco, as they say in Spanish, we grow <laughs> up. It's a slow process, it's but we do process. grow up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that, yeah, that was, that was basically why... The, the what motivated me to get my uh, to decide and mm-hmm. then coming here um, basically yeah I started my masters and then I realized okay yeah I do like research because mm-hmm. when I did my master uh, and you know when you do your master there are in science and in science and engineering there are mainly two but there are two or three uh, different kinds of master degree in engineering. Hmm. One is focused on research, so you okay. do a thesis mm-hmm. okay. uh, or a dissertation. Yep. And second one is mostly course only, mm-hmm. but you do have projects inside the courses. Okay. And the third one is in between. Okay. But mostly, mainly two, two main kinds. One is research focused, one is course mm-hmm. focused. And so you did the... I did the research the focused research. Mm-hmm. and I realized, okay, yeah, I, I actually do like research because mm-hmm. I... Uh, yeah, I did a you know a good research that I liked, and we published uh, mm-hmm. a journal paper on that, okay. and that was like a good you know um, motivation and like rewarding experience for mm-hmm. me. So mm-hmm. and led me to basically keep going and doing my PhD. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so then what was the you know what, what was the thing that you published about? What was the research? It was uh, it was a machine learning thing, mm-hmm. uh, designing an algorithm to predict the students' performance, basically, okay. based on their historical grades. Mm-hmm. So you, you predict their, mm-hmm. what are, what are uh, their grade might be in future courses that they haven't taken, Okay. which helps to design some you know, course recommendation and to guide students to mm-hmm. certain programs or choose majors. Mm-hmm. It helps advisors to you know, look at and see oh, okay. some yeah. intuitions. Yeah, okay. And so when you design this, did you have to use specific coding or, you know, how did you design that that algorithm or how did your team design that? Uh, so basically the the algorithm, uh, 
we came uh, we came up with an idea right first which they call it a model yep so you have this you know mathematical formulation mm-hmm. basically yeah. i don't want to get into t- like mm-hmm. uh, too technical stuff but we've we got some real nerds who like to listen to us diego castando <laughs> fernando where are you guys at i know you guys are listening to this all right go yeah on. this is good <laughs> so i can i can go deep now <laughs> uh-huh. yep and then from there you basically try to solve it and uh-huh. by solving it i mean like mathematically solve the problem right mm-hmm. and from there you have to code it and that's the code you, the coding you are talking about. You can implement the code using different language, whatever language you want. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can use, uh, if some people are interested in programming, you know, now everyone uses Python. Python is very important. You can mm-hmm. use that. We, I, I used MATLAB a lot in my research okay. until recently yeah. I switched to Python. But uh, yeah, mm-hmm. you can use C, you can use any programming. Okay. Language. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, you did that. You created that program. You were in on the research path, basically. Mm-hmm. But this was as a part of of a master's. The master. Yeah. The master's, right? Yes. And so when? Okay. So let's maybe put a timeline on it here too. That might be useful for people. So you arrived to the U.S. in 2013, and that's when you were starting your. You, you started your master's basically in 2013. I started right? 2014. Okay. Started yeah, in 2014. And how long did it take for you to finish your master's? Uh, two years. Two years. So you finished basically in 2016. And yes, end of summer of 2016, yes. Okay. And then did you begin your PhD right after that? or? Uh, yeah, definitely. I, you know, Towards the end, I realized, okay, you know, uh, I've been working with my advisor. I really liked working with him. I learned a lot from him. So, mm-hmm. uh, And then I... So he agreed to have me as a PhD student. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I was like, cool, let's do it. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so, so that's how you got in. Like, basically, you had to get an approval from your advisor, essentially? Yeah, I had, okay, if, if you're talking about the technical stuff, uh, yeah. you know, uh, basically, they call it an upgrade, yeah. which this is actually a good trick and a good, a good advice because uh-huh. sometimes people really know that they want to get their PhD, right? Uh-huh. But they try to find, uh, uh, you know, uh, PhD uh, admission or acceptance right away. Mm-hmm. And that's really yeah. tough because, you know, you compete for people from all... If you are applying to the US, I mean, yeah. you're like competing with people from all over the world, right? Uh-huh. But if you start, uh, you apply for a master and mm-hmm. then you work with an advisor, they, you like them, they like you, then you can basically agree to uh, keep going. Mm-hmm. But also for the program itself, if your GPA is good, decent, and then you can even take uh, the qualifying exam for the which uh, the exam that the, a PhD students usually take during the first year. Mm-hmm. So you can take it as a master student. Nobody will uh, stop you. Mm-hmm. And then once you take it, you basically kind of you're guaranteeing guaranteeing in most yeah. cases your uh, admission to uh, the PhD program. Mm-hmm. Okay. Can, yes. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah we can cool. uh, recap that if that was confusing. No. But, no. That totally made sense. Yeah. I'm just. I'm, I'm thinking about it. I didn't realize it was like that. So basically, you know, if people want to come to the U.S. to try to get a PhD, oftentimes the best thing to do is to not apply directly for a PhD, but to try to get a master's degree, and then have a good relationship with your advisor or something close to that. If you can get the PhD directly, great. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. But mm-hmm. if you don't want to spend one more year to be qualified or to compete uh-huh. in, a, in, a, in certain yeah. universities, you can, get, you can apply and get your, uh, mm-hmm. you know, come for your master's. And yeah. then you, you basically, 
be qualified while doing your master instead of while not mm-hmm. doing either, you know? Interesting, yeah. And so, like, what are the chances... I'm sure you don't know, like, statistics from other countries, but, like, let's say someone coming from Saudi Arabia. So if someone wants to come from Saudi Arabia to get a master's degree, you know, what is the... Like, what are the chances of that working? Or can you just... Is it 100% that if you want to come to the U.S. for a master's degree, you will be accepted into a program or like... I wouldn't say 100%. Mm-hmm. This really depends on the score, right? Okay. And your your profile. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, but I think definitely it's easier than a PhD, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to be accepted in a PhD program. Yeah, definitely. But I wouldn't... It's hard to tell. Like, It's not 100%. It's never 100%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because again, you are also competing with you know that the if you I think if you look up the you know acceptance rate for decent schools, not even the top schools in the US yeah. in science and engineering, and I don't know about other majors, but that, that's what I know of. I think I think it's it's also challenging still, so mm-hmm. even for a master degree, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So for you in your case, that's the way it worked out. Is you know you yeah, did your exactly. masters and you had a good, really good relationship with your advisor, and so that's how you sort of got into the PhD program. And then he remained your same advisor even throughout the the PhD. Yeah. Correct? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So mm-hmm. yeah. Basically, he yeah I kept working with him, mm-hmm. uh, doing my PhD research with him for you know mm-hmm. the rest of the time. Okay. And what's the relationship like, you know, with a PhD student and the advisor? What does the advisor do? Is it just some, like, lazy guy who sits up in, like, an office, you know, drinking coffee and eating donuts and being like, hey, yeah, go do some more research, man. Like, that's how I picture it. I picture someone, like, getting paid six figures to not do a damn thing up there. But anyway, go on. Uh, honestly, I think it's it can be very different, but this is important. Mm-hmm. Choosing your advisor is okay. important for both of you, you know, mm-hmm. because uh, it's it's tricky because when you're a student, a student applying, all what you care about is finding, uh, you know, um, you know, to be accepted in a good school, basically, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't you don't basically choose, but it's very important if you are doing your PhD, okay. because mm-hmm. this it's a long time, at least yeah. five years in most yeah. cases, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So the relationship is important. For again, for both of you to be productive, uh, it's very important to have you know some agreement. You have to get along. You have to have mm-hmm. the same interest sure. in research. Yeah, and it's definitely not like that. At mm-hmm. least for for most cases, not like they just mm-hmm. tell you to do the work. They will <laughs> advise you. They will guide you. Mm-hmm. When I, for example, when I started with my advisor, I didn't know how to do research. Basically, I had okay. a, I had zero research experience. Mm-hmm. And he definitely guided me through the process, you know, gave me a problem and then guided me through the solution. And it was a lot of, uh, you know, investment in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Right. But then later on, you become more independent. Mm-hmm. And that's the way they, they see it as well. Okay. Like they invest mm-hmm. their time in you. They, they, they um, teach you, they uh, advise you. And then they know that, you know, in a year, you're not going to ask the same questions. You're not going to ask about the basic stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. We're gonna be more uh, independent. Mm-hmm. We're gonna contribute in, uh, mm-hmm. you know, some ideas. Yeah. We're gonna basically in in the end. This is the way I see it. In the end, and that's the goal. Like in the end, it becomes more of a collaboration. Mm-hmm. Like you are colla- uh, doing research co- by collaborating with your advisor, and that's okay. that's also their goal to 
mm-hmm. prepare you to the whatever job you want to do, like whether academia or industry, they want to basically make you an independent researcher. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the role of the advisor is a little bit of a teacher at the beginning to make sure you know how to do the basics of the type of research you have to do and then to have you basically be part of their team, collaborate well with them exactly. and help you as well. Exactly, okay. and then they, they lead their teams in different ways. You know, Sometimes they have group meetings, they have individual meetings. Uh, mm-hmm. Our advisor or my advisor had both, mm-hmm. basically, which I think is a very effective idea. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they have different, different. some of them, some of the uh, advisors, they just tell you, okay, if you have a question, come to me, like you, you can ask for a meeting. They don't have regular meetings because mm-hmm. they have a different vision for that. So, mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And then, yeah. Um, it, well, yeah, you know, you, you mentioned a little bit, you've talked a little bit about what goes into getting a PhD and, you know, it's, uh, it's a, you know, five plus year process. Right. But, what is what is life like then for a PhD student here in the U.S.? Let's say, what's daily life look like? What was it like for you? Um, there is no structure. Mm-hmm. So, well, okay. Let, let me let me. Uh, this is a big generalization, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. In the beginning, in the beginning, you take more classes, mm-hmm. and this is for the general cases. When I started my PhD, I was almost almost done with classes because I took mm-hmm. a lot of classes doing my master's mm-hmm. but for most cases you will take a lot of classes for the first two years right okay the and first two years of the PhD you're of still the taking PhD. a lot of yeah. okay. and that's um, that's basically more structured because you have classes mm-hmm. and then in between your classes or after your classes you're going to do some research right yeah. mm-hmm. so and for most cases you're going to have a specific place Mm-hmm. You know, an office or a lab. If you work with, you know, hardware stuff, yep. uh, to do your research, right? Mm-hmm. So, in a way, it's like you're taking classes, but you're also working mm-hmm. on in a certain lab to do research. Yeah. And then you, once you finish classes, you are just dedicating your time to do the research. Yeah. And mm-hmm. at least in in my experience, there is no structure, right? Mm-hmm. right. So the only thing that you have as a fixed time. Mm-hmm. is the meetings yeah mm-hmm. right other than that it's totally up to you how to mm-hmm. how do how do you spend your time mm-hmm. you can basically you know work at night you can work during the day mm-hmm. uh, and the, that's like that's a that's a cool thing right it, mm-hmm. se- it seems like a cool thing but it's also like I very challenging yeah. <laughs> it's very challenging yeah the second challenge I'm basically driving people away from getting the <laughs> from thinking about PhD uh-huh. but the second challenge is that the research is always open, open, you know, ended uh, okay. questions. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny because when I started with um, my advisor, I was asking him, yeah, if you can think of any, I was just attending the meetings, trying to find something to work on. And one time I told him, yeah, if, if you can think of something, yeah, yeah you know, uh, please l- let me know. Mm-hmm. And he smiled and said, "Yeah, it's it's also hard for me to find to find something." So mm-hmm. yeah. research research is always hard. Like you are always, you know, you need to think a lot to find, you know, uh, either like problems or solutions mm-hmm. that are worth working on. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, 
So, so you have this like very unstructured work and in a very unstructured time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's yeah, when, that's yeah, that's when a lot of PhD students feel like they are like thrown in the ocean, right? And get lost. But yeah, yeah. looks like you have a question. Oh yeah, very observant. Yeah, well, I do have a question. <laughs> I was going to make a comment first and just say that yeah, obviously us as human beings, especially in the societies that we're raised in. It's very odd when we don't have a structure. You know, we're told, okay, you go to school and you'll be there from 8 to 3 p.m. And then after school, you know, when you're done with your 12, 15 years of school, you go to a job and that starts at 8 and ends at 5 p.m. And that is your structure every day. And you do what you're told every day. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, without a structure, even though it sounds really cool, I, I'm guessing a lot of people not having a structure and not being told exactly when and what to do things would be like totally lost, you know? Um, so so how did you do it? What was your schedule like for those days? Yes. So luckily because we, the structure of our, you know, department or the center, we worked until, uh, under center Mm -hmm. at the university, we had, you know, our offices next, next to each other. So my, advisor's office was uh, near us and then mm-hmm. in my lab or it's it's basically an office we just have mm-hmm. computer computer machines yeah mm-hmm. because we don't work on hardware stuff yeah yeah so it was most uh, so we had like three to four offices uh, in each room mm-hmm. and that was good for me to okay you know everyone is going to be there from roughly speaking like 11 a.m if they come late, right? Mm-hmm. And that was me. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that, the anti-morning. I remember, I remember you used to have that anti-morning shirt. I yeah. loved that. Yeah, exactly. Anti-mornings, that was hilarious. And then until, you know, a certain time, like most PhD students, they say until late, but um, yeah, until let's say like five, six, this is the window where people are going to be there. So mm-hmm. if you want to, you know, just have the atmosphere of people working around you, discussing with them, asking mm-hmm. them, you know, uh, going to lunch with them mm-hmm. that was that was definitely what I tried to do for the most part mm-hmm. just to be at the lab you yeah know. Mm-hmm. when I was talking the, taking the classes it's good because you know between the classes I'm not gonna go home there's no time to go home so mm-hmm. I just go to the lab right yeah mm-hmm. but when I finished my classes it was tough to stay within this um, you know routine mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah basically just having a I think the advice here is just having a fixed place mm-hmm. and time is definitely helps you to st- as a st- to start mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. And then you can deal with the uncertainty with the rest mm-hmm. of the stuff. Create a structure for yourself. Yeah, yeah. create a structure. Whether even if it's you know, if you work because I was fighting it, I was fighting, okay, I don't want to start late and then I end I finish, you know, my day late. Mm-hmm. But then in in the end I was just kind of uh, accepting it, which was more convenient, at mm. least uh, back then. You, it's okay. Like I can start late. I can start, you know, uh, even if I start noon, and then I finish late. But at least I have the same structure every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's super important. Obviously, I'm laughing again about the yeah. anti-morning yeah. thing. I mean, I think, um, you know, as you know, I'm an early riser. I'm not sure if there were like any early morning warriors in the lab that were in there at like 5 a.m. every day. But, um, I'm, uh, yeah, I think whatever, you know, we have to find what works for us. So, yeah, you found the structure that works for you, worked for you, which was a little later in the day, and also found a way to just be involved with some of the other students as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, 
yeah, group group meetings help you to be also, you know, uh, I would say try to be involved in as many things as you can, mm. not only the mm-hmm. structure thing, because yeah. in the beginning, if you are new, usually you just stick with the structure thing because you just don't think out of the box. So, okay, I can basically start collaboration with someone. Like, it doesn't have to be given, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. do it yourself. Yeah. Which is probably hard, like I'm thinking about it now, but you know, it's hard when you're just starting to think that, okay, I could do that, that's uh, mm-hmm. you know, an option. But yeah, if you're like more involved with people, it's like you're creating collaboration rather than working alone. I totally, this is like a you know, highlight I, want, I always want to give people. Okay. Try mm-hmm. to you know, have more collaboration, as in, uh, unless your work requires to do this on your own, because I know mm-hmm. programs have different... Mm-hmm. structures but if you can collaborate and then uh, discuss ideas and work with other people in your team I think that that's always helpful rather than working alone mm-hmm. which also builds your you know interpersonal skills as of well of course yeah okay very cool yeah um, well and I think that's a good life lesson for for everyone that's actually something I regret from my 20s is not building enough good relationships and collaborating enough with people on things so yeah, I mean, it's good to know that you can do that with um, with the PhD as well, because when I hear about it, I think about it as something that is just like your research, you're, you're, you're buried, you have your face buried into a computer for 10 hours a day for five years just researching, and that would be really difficult if you were not collaborating. Yeah. yeah, of course. No, luckily, in, in the area I worked at, uh, collaboration is encouraged because we publish papers, that's the goal of the end of the project, basically, to publish a paper mm-hmm. about yeah. whatever you're working on. Yeah. It's not the goal, but it's it basically highlights the contribution, right? Mm-hmm. So, and then you can collaborate with others, not only your uh, advisor or co-advisor, some people have more than advisor, mm-hmm. but then even with your lab mates, you know, with more senior or even more junior uh, mm-hmm. lab mates, then you collab- collaborate with them, you write the paper together, Usually, yeah, it's just you have to make sure what's going to be your research, what's going to be their research, and that's mm-hmm. pro- that's also like probably something that your your uh, you know advisor or research advisor will be aware of. Yeah. So yeah, not, it's nothing mm-hmm. to okay. highlight here, but yeah. Well, and you now you hit on an important point here, which is you know the goal of it is to publish a paper, to publish something at the end. I guess what I still don't even understand is what is the requirement then to get your PhD, you know, like yours is in the field of, of, of data science, obviously, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, I guess, yeah, so what, what was required in order for you to receive the degree? <laughs> yeah, so the short answer, technically, publishing is usually, for the most cases, I, I've seen some programs that require it, but for the most cases, it's not required. Mm-hmm. They don't say that you have to publish to get your PhD. Mm-hmm. But in some areas, in some fields, or um, they basically, it's a highlight that you, because the PhD thesis, to, to my, my understanding, is that you have to work with something and then either like find a gap or contribute. Mm-hmm. Like find, you know, your thesis has to be a unique contribution. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, supposedly, you will be the one of the top experts in that specific area that you are touching on for mm-hmm. for your thesis, right? And since you are, you know, finding all these unique uh, problems or solutions, 
then you can prove them, you, you can prove that, okay, this is actually uh, a novel solution or a novel mm. contribution that I'm proposing here. You can prove that by publishing. Mm -hmm. okay. So when, when you publish papers, you which uh, pu maybe we should give a, a short preview about publication. Please, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, publication in in the uh, not only in the US, all over the world. When you publish your work, it could mean so many different things, right? Mm -hmm. But let me just narrow it down. In the science field, publication usually refers to uh, having your uh, you know, journal or, or conference reviewed by a committee, which is usually, they call it peer review. Mm -hmm, so right. you have people who are working in the same area to review your work, three to five, mm -hmm. uh, roughly speaking, reviewers. Mm -hmm. They read your paper and then they approve to publish it or to deny it. Mm -hmm. And then okay. they give you some feedback. Mm -hmm. And there are two main kinds. The journals, so they just it's just a publication that's mm -hmm. usually, you know, going to be available online. Or conferences. Conferences, the, you can. It's it's going to be also publication. They have proceedings, so mm -hmm. they publish it. Okay. Uh, and you also present your work mm -hmm. when you go to the conference. Then you present work, your work to the audience okay. in, in the conference. So. Mm -hmm. So okay. it, it's kind of an approval that okay, uh, your work is uh, novel or or you you have a contribution in this work or this mm -hmm. paper. Right. Okay. And so you, you need to, well, basically to get something published, to create a novel contribution to an area, something that you're an expert in, and get it approved, if that's the right way to describe it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's basically it, or is there something else in addition to that you have to do to get the PhD? Um, oh, uh, back yeah. back to the main point, right? Yeah, okay, sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah there, the, there's more. I knew there would be more, yeah. For the PhD, the, yeah, so that's how publication became a thing, I think, I, to my understanding. Mm -hmm. So mostly you, when you want to work with someone, they might tell you, actually, they might tell you, okay, I expect you to publish three to five papers mm -hmm. during their PhD. And they might even specify, I expect you to publish one journal and two conferences, something like mm -hmm. that, right? Because that's that's the contribution they expect you to, um, you know, achieve during your PhD, mm -hmm. depending on the expectation, depending on your your advisor and the department mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. So um, I think so. Th there are some technical stuff that you need to do to get your PhD. Right? It, I don't know if you want me to go through the, right. you know, all the exams. Go ahead, and, man. Yeah. Yeah. What's wrong with it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Basically, yeah. You you just do. For usually, this is actually different from a school to a school, so I'm okay. just going to try to give high level. Usually, you are a PhD student, not a PhD candidate, okay. until you finish some requirements. Mm -hmm. And in my program, there were two, two requirements. Mm -hmm. A written exam, which is a comprehensive exam. You, you, pick, up, you pick three topics, and then mm -hmm. you ju they just ask you problems about to solve. Mm -hmm. And you, usually, it's like undergrad level uh, mm -hmm. Material. So, for okay. example, you pick, uh, you know, signal processing in electrical engineering, or mm -hmm. um, yeah, just like you know, sub disciplines within yeah. the field. You pick three topics, and then they will ask you about them. That's the undergrad level stuff. That sounds pretty difficult. <laughs> <but> anyway, <laughs> yeah. Go on. Yeah. So, and then you solve this exam, which is honestly, I think it's. I have you know some concerns about that. I think it it can be. Hmm. Kind of not. It doesn't serve the point. Okay. I think yeah. Hmm. 
uh, and it takes a lot of time and stress to do mm-hmm. it. And after that, you do the, they call it a proposal. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you basically propose your research ideas. Mm-hmm. You do a presentation, basically, a 45, uh, half an hour to 45 minutes presentation, and then the committee will give you, mm-hmm. they ask you questions, so they mm-hmm. can either to clarify or to examine you, and yeah. then they give you a feedback. Okay, you should, for example, consider that or that. Mm-hmm. And after you finish the proposal uh, defense, mm-hmm. or maybe that's a confusing term, but yeah, after you finish the proposal, then you do you become a PhD candidate. Okay. And then after that, you just have to finish your thesis mm-hmm. and do the final defense, usually known as a defense, which is you know, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> we talked about this before, yeah. yeah, because when I hear the word defense, I'm thinking it's like, like you're fighting. Yeah, I'm thinking like fighting off the bad guys, right? Um, exactly. Okay, uh, gosh, I had a question that I was going to ask about that. Maybe it will come back to me. But um, okay, so then you know your thesis. So let's get specific on the thesis, right? So how okay. long does the thesis um, have to be? Or what are we, what is the thesis like in general? Remember how long, right? Yeah, like how, um, how how many pages? How many words? Remember, you're coming from a. A non-graduate school person here, so yeah. I'm just like, no, yeah, three-page paper, I can do that maybe, but yeah, um, honestly, it's not about the link; it's about your advisor first, mm-hmm. and then the committee approving the content. Okay, it could be, you know, I have, I have seen different, you know, number of pages. It could be, you know, usually I, have, I haven't seen less than, you know, seventy pages. But there's a lot of space and mm-hmm. pictures, and it's not all right. I haven't seen less than 70 pages. Yeah. Woo! And then up At to least you know, 100. Some people pages. have like up more than 200, but... Oh, my goodness, man. That's just literally like writing a book. Oof. Yeah. But, you know, it's funny because I didn't... Well, I didn't technically finish writing my thesis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ooh, busted! All right, go on. This is where the episode gets really good. So I'm not an actual doctor. So. <laughs> He's a fraud. Okay. All right. I should probably leave at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yep. but, next. Yeah. Who's next in line for these podcasts? But um, but honestly, I'm, I'm almost done with the content, which is basically, and they approved Mm-hmm. For me to defend yeah. it, so uh-huh. um, basically it was for I was <laughs> I was just trying to say that since I have papers we uh-huh. talked about right, so if you take these papers combine them, then that's pretty much your thesis. So in so, I feel like that's mostly the case in most you know engineering and science. Mm-hmm. Uh, if publication is encouraged in the lab you work at, then you just take those papers and combine them and that and then connect them. Obviously, you're not gonna just copy paste right you know organize the content it's a shame you can't just copy paste anyway go on <laughs> but okay. yeah so so writing the thesis in science and engineering is not the main issue mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pretty sure in uh, you know lib ed yeah and uh, liberal education yeah uh, liberal, arts, liberal, liberal arts liberal whatever they yeah. call it yeah uh, that's probably you know because the, the, the main contribution is the way you, you know, make an argument, discuss mm. an argument, right. you know, finding, um, you know, addressing cer- a certain thing in your thesis. Uh, however, for us, it's the, the writing part is just you're describing the contribution you made, which is usually novel in, in the math mm. uh, part and in the, you know, the coding and data testing and all that. 
Mm-hmm. But you you have to be good in terms of technical writing, which is a, a skill that you you would learn, yeah. uh, and it, it's it's a great skill. This is one of my favorite. Okay. Yeah, technical writing and how how do you present your work? How how yeah. do you you know tell people that oh I did that hmm. in a certain way? Well, this is very important, and we've you know we have some students and followers of Keep Talking who talk about how can I become a better writer in my field in English? Do you have any advice on how to become a good technical writer? Um, I think the start is just being good in writing as a first step, mm-hmm. which uh, I, I I don't think I was in, like you know never good in terms of writing. Mm-hmm. Well, like it's not general, even your first language. Yeah, general case, purposes. You know? yeah. And also, I realized actually this is interesting to Arabic uh, speakers if we have mm-hmm. any in the audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I feel like this is usually the lowest skill for us in ter- if you think about you know reading, speaking, writing, and you know mm-hmm. listening. Yeah. Uh, because we don't study at least back when I did school, right? Mm-hmm. We don't study like Arabic writing a lot. Mm-hmm. We did some, yeah. but it's not it's not the same way that you guys do it. This is a good thing in the US system. Okay. I feel like you, you know. Uh, Kids in like school, they do a lot of writing. Yeah, you know, I have to write a an essay, but we didn't really do that mm-hmm. enough. We did some to some extent, but not not a lot. Not in high school, for example, mm-hmm. which is okay. interesting. Like I'm talking Arabic, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. in your first language. Yeah, that is interesting. So yeah. that's that's one thing I noticed that okay, you know, it's just you know the writing skill, not only the English writing, right? That you need to work on. Mm-hmm. And yes. yeah, definitely just just write by yourself and also learn the basic stuff. When you write, like, you know, every paragraph has to have certain, mm-hmm. you know, a main idea. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, just practice. Just pick a topic. And then I know now, for example, I was talking to my nephew and he mentioned that there are some websites where you write and then they give you feedback. Uh, maybe we did also talk about that for a bit. Well, I yeah, I think we did. I don't really remember the details. I mean, they have all these websites now that you can go to. Well, there's a lot of tools. I guess, okay, maybe the best advice we can give people is just, you know, Google, writing tools, writing website. I mean, yeah. the internet will help you, basically, if you need yeah. help with writing. But it's a good habit to, you know, if you, if you, if you have something that you like. If you like writing in general... And you do it in your first language. Try to do it in English. Mm-hmm. It's tough. It's really tough. I used yeah. I used to write in Arabic first and then translate. This is how I wrote my statement of purpose okay. to get you know mm-hmm. into the master program. Mm-hmm. Did it, did it <laughs> which work was well? I mean, it, just probably it was funny. Like I think I mm-hmm. still have the statement. I need to go back mm-hmm. and read it. <laughs> yeah, I want to read that, man. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. And definitely don't do that because <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> just you know. Try to see the difference between English writing and writing in your language because there are always big differences. Mm-hmm. But for technical writing, the way I learned it, I don't think I'm not the like the right person to ask how to improve it because I just learned it by experience. But maybe that's the advice I would give. Like, so that's the answer then. Yeah, yeah just exactly. keep practicing basically. Yeah, yeah, like the first thing I wrote was trying to write my thesis, which oof, you. Mm-hmm. You should you should uh, see the feedback I, I received on that. Mm-hmm. That was yeah really like bad. That was the first technical writing outside of you know a course project. That was like mm-hmm. the big thing. I, yeah. I did like some 
mm-hmm. projects, you know, in grad school in the US, but the thesis was the biggest, you know, full, well, full thing. I'm interested in this. When you say you received bad feedback because, you know, uh, it's very difficult for all of us whenever we're criticized to receive negative feedback about anything. Obviously, there is constructive criticism, but when we receive negative feedback, it can really be discouraging. It can discourage us completely from from the idea, whatever it may be. So you're saying that at the beginning, when you were writing your thesis, you got negative feedback. Um, yeah, I don't think... It, it wasn't like a tough, like a harsh feedback, but it was mm-hmm. just, um, you know, obviously it sucked. It wasn't good. Okay. So mm-hmm. I, I could see that from the feedback. But yeah, it was um, it was put in a way that's constru- constructive, I would okay. say. Uh, mm-hmm. So that, but but in general, like in in your life, you're going to receive negative feedback, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Uh, but you can always trans, you know, transform it into constructive, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not you know not like not like make it as a you know. Uh, the reason why you to be like discouraged, yeah, yeah, just mm-hmm. you know, keep going, and it's never about you. It's it's never personal. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. It's, it's always about the work. So, so yeah, that's why I think for me, like when I think about it now, it's it was just you know, just a lot of edit mm-hmm. where you just think, that, wow, I I really don't know how to write, you know, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, like just you know, a lot of that's edit. Funny. Yeah, that that was that was the. Uh, the negative aspect of it, you know, yeah. just mm-hmm. you know, a lot of edits and then a lot of also comments that this is for them, like you know, should uh, yeah, something wasn't clear enough or something was not yeah or was you know in the wrong place, you know, before explaining some other right. concepts. But in general, yeah, this is basically by experience. Like once you get feedback like that, which is on actually like this doesn't happen often. Like you. Sh- you should think about it. Okay, I'm lucky to have a feedback like that t- mm-hmm. to, to improve, right? Right, yeah. Because you don't always get the chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, honest feedback, you know, yeah. is o- it's only much like, better than no feedback. Yeah, exactly. Better yeah. than no, no feedback. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you just have to be willing to accept the, okay, yeah, it, it needs to be improved and then make the improvements. Yeah, so mm-hmm. playing psychological games with ourselves. Exactly, right? yes, yeah. yes. Okay. Well, good for you. Yeah, I mean that's that's very good that you were able to just take the feedback and say, okay, let's improve it. So yeah, yeah. Okay, and then uh, the last thing about the PhD. So talk about the defense. So what what all goes into that? How does that part of it work? Uh, so okay, uh, you mean like part of the work? How much like part of it will will be in my well, defense or just just what is the defense exactly? Because you know mm-hmm. that was something that you did. Just uh, what you finished it was it on the twenty eighth? Yeah, twenty so eighth. Yes, two and a half week and a half ago, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so just explain for the listeners what is the defense? Exactly. Right. So basically, the defense is so you have assume you have your thesis ready to be defended, mm-hmm. right? Which I didn't finish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Shh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, it's basically you have all this work that you did. Mm-hmm. Right, you try to bring it, not all of it. Right, you, mm-hmm. you bring whatever you want to do, you have the freedom to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, you have the help, mm-hmm. but then and present it. And 
I think the reason why they use the name defend is that you basically make the claim that okay, this I'm doing a work that deserves a PhD, basically, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. to put it in a story, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, storyline, yeah. uh-huh. and they look at it and they might ask a question. They might try to uh, make sure that yeah, this is worth a PhD and ask you questions, challenge you, and mm-hmm. you answer that. That that's the defend part, like yeah. the, the private discussion that you have yeah. with the committee. Okay. Um, and yeah, that's the defense basically, Present- a presentation of your work. Okay. And the, yeah, usually you don't include everything because some people do try to that uh, to show that they did a lot. Mm-hmm. So they try to include everything and that's a big mistake. Mm-hmm. So okay. you include what you think is worth mentioning basically. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And yeah, you just keep ma- try to make it interesting. So. Okay. And then once they hear your presentation... Uh, if they approve of it and they agree, if the committee agrees to it, then you have the PhD, and then they call you Dr. Al Mutayni. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. At the end, yeah, we, they have the discussion, and then they tell you the result, which is mm-hmm. I think at the U of M, it was like pass or fail, which mm-hmm. is interesting. So. That is interesting. Yeah. Oh <laughs> well, no, it really sucks to be one of the people that failed. You know, just yeah, know. just no PhD. Yeah, so all this work and then. Nothing. Thumbs down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I've what, never had that happen. Yeah. Well, well, then what happens though if someone fails? Can you just like come back tomorrow and try the defense again, or what? Like, what happens if you just fail? Yeah, I think it would. I don't know, honestly. I don't know the answer to that. I think because that's why they have the proposal. Mm-hmm. If you, if from your proposal they think that this is a that's really right. bad idea. Yeah. yeah, that's a really bad idea, or that's not a, a research direction, or whatever mm-hmm. reason. They might just shoot it down and they tell you to redo the proposal. Mm-hmm. But, I th- but I think, see the confusion with Arabic, is it like best? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's all right, man. It yeah. happens. So, uh, yeah, I think basically once they approve the proposal, it's really hard mm-hmm. for them to see a point where, no, you don't deserve a PhD for this work, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, okay. So they're, they're kind of filtering it at the beginning. When you do your proposal, exactly, they yes. approve. That way there's a much greater chance that you get approved for the PhD at the end. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know the exact rules, honestly, regarding that. Because it, it rarely happens. Or like I've never yeah. heard of it. So. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Well, yeah, if you do all that work for all that time, you better get the reward yeah, at the e- end. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then you definitely did. So congratulations again. And, Thank um, you. As you were telling me, you have a job offer with a company, which we won't go into the details of yet, but congratulations again. So, Thank you. Thank um, you. Yeah, I mean, maybe to finish things off, I wanted to have a, a free discussion just kind of about data science, machine learning, and AI. We've been going for a while, but uh, do, do you want to take a bathroom break? Do you want to take an extra water break? Or uh, I think I'm good, I yeah. Do. All right, let's, let's push yeah, right we're, on through We're it, warmed you know? up, so yeah. yeah, let's do it. Yeah, we're warm. The conversation's hot. We've been on this for an hour and, what, yeah. 17 minutes. So. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. It, the time flies, man. The time flies when you're... Um, when you're just having a good conversation. So, um, yalla, yeah, as they say in Arabic. Let's keep going. So, Vamos. all right. Let's talk about data science. Well, okay. Do you think actually first you could like define the terms for people, the terms data science, artificial intelligence or AI, and mm-hmm. machine learning? 
yeah. you know, and the differences between those three. Go yeah, ahead. exactly. This is like interesting. I think everyone honestly have, not everyone, but like different people have their different mm-hmm. yeah. uh, definitions of those. And I'm not trying to, you know, just to my understanding, basically mm-hmm. data science is when you take data and then you try to develop you know methods and let's say like to be more technical like scientific methods that's why it's science Mm -hmm. to reach uh you know some uh, understanding of the data or answer some questions Mm -hmm. or provide insights Mm -hmm. for example in business settings you would say that okay like i have this data then what do i do with it then using data science you can take the data and develop some tools Mm to uh, help the business, let's mm-hmm. say, the company or you know the business party right. to take some action, basically. Mm-hmm. Use the data to provide some insights yes. for them to take actions to reach a certain objective, let's say, like, increase profit or, mm-hmm. or gain more customers. Yes, to better understand the customers, to just anything related to any objective increasing their profits for the most part in the case of businesses exactly and this is becoming more important because there are a lot of data these days mm-hmm. and we are only using oh, a small yeah. portion of it so yeah hmm. interesting okay yeah. well let me stop you right there actually i'll save my question keep going keep i'll just keep going with the terms yeah. right yeah. because and then ai which is what's scaring people that it would mm-hmm. you know take over the world. Yeah, we're all going to be robots by 2030 or is it 2045? I don't know. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. Exactly. So it's just a building, let's say, like a machine or a device that does something smart. That, that's yeah. like in a simple definition. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily using machine learning. Sometimes you're using just programming. Yes. I'm just programming yeah. something mm-hmm. to do like, okay, if I tell you that, then do that. If I tell you that, people who are doing yeah. Program programming in the audience. It's just like if statements, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then that that could be an AI product, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a general term than machine learning because machine learning is basically uh, teaching the machine something using the data, mm-hmm. usually using the historical data you have, mm-hmm. without uh, without you know, uh, the, regardless of what you're using, it's just you're using the data mm-hmm. to teach the machine to do something. Like for example in self-driving cars, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Autonomous driving. You're teaching the car using the data that uh, if you see a stoplight, then you stop. Mm-hmm. And the way that the car recognizes the stoplight is based on historical data because they train the, the, this device using a lot of data mm-hmm. by showing the car a lot of pictures mm-hmm. or even videos by yeah. real time. And we're talking about how many thousands and thousands of videos or, um, well... Yeah, up to probably millions because in in the new methods, the new machine learning methods they use, Mm -hmm. you know, to to get into technical, you know, deep learning and like, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, neural networks, they they use a lot of data to be trained. Right. And, okay, so let me just first clarify this. So, you know, machine learning is essentially just a more advanced... Sub subset or subversion of artificial intelligence, it's where the yeah. machines yeah actually use the data to learn things. Exactly. Some sometimes they even draw them in circles. They have like AI and then yeah. machine learning inside, and then deep learning like yeah. inside machine learning. Okay. And then when they do these, so let's say you've got a self-driving car that is learning 
how to drive. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm like the lowest level of this conversation. <laughs> a self-driving car that's learning how to drive. Okay. <laughs> and like so it. it's learning it's learning about the stoplight. It's seeing, you know, all of the thousands and millions of images. Okay. How are they feeding the car this information? It's through a computer program or like, how is the car getting this this data and this information? Do you know the specifics of that? I don't know the specifics. Okay. Yeah, I've never looked into, you know, right. how they design like in practice. Yeah. But I have seen, for example, you know, test um, stages where they have, they build a model Mm-hmm. which is an an algorithm mm-hmm. that has two phases okay. you know training and testing and using mm-hmm. the training and the algorithm if someone is interested in the details the algorithm is basically a neural network uh-huh. uh, yeah. you know algorithm they train it using images basically mm-hmm. uh, images or videos I, I forgot exactly but using data basically right mm-hmm. historical data when it's you know it's not even it doesn't have to be in the car at this point mm-hmm. And and then they take this algorithm that basically takes action uh, in terms of outputs. If you see that, then, for example, right. driving on the lane. Yep. If you see the lane is uh, turning left or you mm-hmm. see a stop sign, then you stop, right? Yep. And so the output is usually a finite number of options, right? You mm-hmm. stop, you keep driving, yeah. you turn right, you turn left, right? And then using that output, you take it. Mm-hmm. And then the, here comes the programming and the hardware. Mm-hmm. You feed it into you know some like electronics mm-hmm. that takes that and then try to uh, you know control the, the, the car and th- that also you know is connected to the mechanics and th- that's not that's not my area. So I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not trying to I'm not Fair going enough. to try yeah. to be <laughs> yeah yeah to be smart here. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. And so it, it essentially is it's just it's, it's a computer program with a lot of if-else statements, as they call them, right? Which is, you know, if this, then this, or else, else. Else is what they use in programming to say, not if. Even though I'm a dummy, I do have some basic programming experience. But And so that's how the the car or the machine decides what to do. But the way uh, uh, it doesn't decide what to do based on the if, uh, at least in the example I saw, it Mm. decides based on what it sees as a a picture. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, hmm. Because of the algorithm in the training phase, in the test phase, hmm. by seeing this snap, uh, yeah. you know, this uh, uh, picture, mm-hmm. then it it, uh, it gives the output. The algorithm will give the output. Mm-hmm. And the output is an action, like turn right, yeah. right, turn left, slow down, speed, or keep going. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. So it's not... It's not um, it's basically because the algorithm was trained on those pictures to take the right action. Mm-hmm. So you give the algorithm the pictures as an input, and the right action is the output. Mm-hmm. So okay. now, now that your algorithm is trained, mm-hmm. so by that it means that you don't have, the, you don't know the output anymore, right? Mm-hmm. It's in the testing phase, so you only know the input. Mm-hmm. So the input is the pictures, like what the car sees, mm-hmm. right? So once you put it on the street, and the car sees, you know, uh, the lane is turning right, so the car has to turn right then that's the input to the algorithm and the output is the right action. And hopefully, if your algorithm is smart enough, it will pick the right action. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not... it's not Probably like 75% percent? Okay. sense. Yeah. This is high-level stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, okay. 
Makes sense. Yeah, basically you're teaching the car what to do. Okay, let's bring it to probably more like uh, Sean level of conversation. High, high level, like without Ooh, getting the details. Okay. High yeah. level, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, not uh, you basically based on the historical data you trained your car or mm-hmm. your car. Let's the whole algorithm, right? Mm-hmm. And based on those, based on the training your car hopefully will take the right action once it sees a sublight, it will stop. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's the, the main point. Mm-hmm. And it, it becomes to this, you know, um, uh, level based on the training. Mm-hmm. That, that's pretty much. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep, I yeah. think I, I get it now. And, and so it's basically, I mean, is there, there's kind of like a trial and error to it though, right? You know what I mean? That's like, that's why they have to do millions and millions of mm-hmm. examples, if you will, in the testing and training phase to make sure that it's getting it as accurate as possible or that it picks the right thing, right? Yeah, you, what you are referring to is the metrics, basically. Mm-hmm. Every algorithm has to have metric of performance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, for example, yeah, what's the accuracy? What's the, uh, and then the other metrics of the algorithm? Mm-hmm. So I know that, okay, the algorithm is right up to, now especially with image processing, Mm-hmm. Algorithms can be very accurate, right? right you know, yeah. image image identification and segmentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I know my the algorithm will be accurate, you know, ninety nine point something of yeah. the time. So, yeah. Well, does perfection exist? In you know, like I'm, I'm thinking of the self driving cars example, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people who are advocates of self driving cars say, well, it's proven that self driving cars cause less accidents than human drivers, right? You know, you might, like, let's say that, for example, um, a human driver, I have no, these are just, like, total BS statistics, right? (laughs) A human driver is going to cause an accident in one out of every 2,000 trips Mm -hmm. that they're driving. And a self-driving car might only cause it in one out of every 5,000, which means that the self-driving car has, like, a 99.2, nine seven five or whatever you know uh, success rate if you will does perfection exist is there a possibility of you know a self-driving car or any other sort of machine getting things right 100 percent of the time in the case where it needs to be based on machine learning or deep learning uh i think as long as you know perfection uh, or like perfection doesn't exist in human. It's mm-hmm. probably <laughs> it's probably hard to design an algorithm that's a hundred percent. It could be a hundred percent right of the time that you tested on. Right. Mm-hmm. I could find an algorithm that works a hundred percent on the time I tested on. Yeah. Right. But but then once I have another case that you know it's slightly different. Then, yeah. it, then it then it might fail, so it's really hard. It's really, you know, kind of. If I see a claim like that, I would be okay. This is based on your test. But yeah, yeah. Test it more on other data and see how it goes, right? So if I'm hearing this correctly, it's because of the human factor in real life situations that no algorithm will probably ever be one hundred percent, right? Like you can test it. In your test environment, it can always predict correctly, but then when you get out into the real world, quote unquote, where there are more human factors and more like unexpected things, 
it probably won't be exactly 100%. Exactly, because you know the algorithm is only smart in what you teach it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? So if I teach it on, you know, to drive in, uh, you know, like Florida, for example, right? And then I come... I, <laughs> Yeah, and then it, it driving like eighty-eight miles an hour down the yeah. freeway all day long. They go fast yeah. down there, man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's probably not the right example. Yeah. I was just trying to pick like a place with no snow. So oh, yeah, yeah. If, if I you know test it in you know Texas, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, Ninety-two <laughs> miles an hour down the freeway. All right, go on. <laughs> we can keep going. Yeah. And then bring it to Minnesota where yeah. there's snow. Then it's not going to drive well, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's going to be going ninety-two, sliding off the road. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that's what I was saying. So it's 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 a big claim to say that okay my algorithm works 100 mm-hmm. percent because it depends on what you teach it it depends on what or, or like usually you test the performance in the test in the real world like case right so it depends on your test you you might you know it might drive well and not get in, into an accident for a week but then if you test it more it might fail you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that's interesting though, because I, I just feel like it's because of the human factor. That's why the machines can't be perfect. When we sometimes that's that's a philosophical statement. Yeah. That's <laughs> is it is it a correct philosophical statement? I, I mean, um, it's maybe just, I'm oversimplifying. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just uh, we, if we cannot be perfect, we probably cannot design algorithms that. Well, also that's that's also another interesting point because, for example, in some image applications, they did design algorithms that are more accurate than the human performance mm-hmm. with like classifying yeah uh, well, images, for example. I have no doubt about that because yeah. yeah, I mean, I see I see it very easy to beat human performance in a lot of fields. You know, right, right. It seems like perfection is still almost impossible. But I mean, like. You know, computers essentially are perfect, machines, I should say, essentially are perfect at doing calculations, you know, like math. Like if I go on my calculator on my phone, or even the Google calculator, I know that if I put in, you know, some mathematical equation, it's going to give me the right answer. Like, Exactly. The thing is, like with algorithms that uh, that we are talking about, for example, self-driving cars or, or other applications, the challenge is that... The data, maybe that's that's the connection. Yeah. The real world is not perfect. Not not just you right, know, right. Right. You know, uh, no matter how you train it, there are some scenarios that they call outliers. For example, in algorithms, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, you see a treat in a street that looks weird. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> looks different, or covering the street, or something like that. Like just outlier situ, an outlier situation. Okay. So that that's probably the way to think about it. Okay. So there always will be slight outliers in the real world. Once you right? put it, yeah, once you put it into application, there are some, you know, uh, different scenarios that might, yeah, uh, you know, become into uh, a formula. Yeah. Okay. Now, you said earlier that the data, you know, like when you were talking about the definition of data science, you said that, you know, there's a lot of data out there that isn't being used. Um where yeah, yeah. Um, what data do you think maybe should be used that isn't being used yet oh that's a good question putting you on the spot now. yeah no I think I'm break. yeah I'm Keep very uh, I'm passionate about healthcare mm-hmm. uh, 
applications in general. Mm-hmm. So I think that's in the past. I think there used to be you know less interest in general, or like at least less work in the you know in the machine learning area mm-hmm. uh, in healthcare. But now it's becoming you know uh, more popular. Yeah. So there are like more companies that are invested in, uh, you know, designing AI for healthcare applications. Mm-hmm. So I think, in general, yeah, like the health, the health data, or you know, mm-hmm. human health in general. Yeah. Uh, I think we could have more. We could use the the data more to you know answer some questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe I would say. I'm, I'm sure there are some studies than than I know or than I think uh, in terms of you know the brain and how the brain works and mm-hmm. because you know there are uh, MRI or like images you know or these uh, data mm-hmm. that they use to study the brain and I know there are some people who work uh, in machine learning using uh, you know image brains uh, yeah. or brain images mm-hmm. and. Uh, but that, that's an area that I feel like we could we could probably try to advance that more mm-hmm. more than we are, yeah. we are doing. Well, and so you would use would you use this type of medical data more on a micro or a macro level? And by a micro level, I mean you know using an individual's data to improve their own health, or using the data of many people to try to you know I don't know do something new for society medically if that makes sense both and usually actually the way it works you're probably are going to use one to reach the other objective for example to reach mm. to, to help one person that the uh, you know with their health you're going to use the data of especially in machine learning right the, the mm-hmm. data in a macro macro level Mm-hmm. So yeah, okay. both basically. Yeah, you just try to have more insights from the the data in general that will help the society and it will help individuals mm-hmm. as well. Okay, yeah, and and in healthcare, you know, what do you see maybe being the most important data points? You talked about the, um, you know, brain imaging. Um, would you? What other data do you think they're not using a lot of in healthcare? Mm. I ask because I am pretty much work in healthcare. Yeah. Um. Yeah, basically, like I didn't have specific example to when I mentioned the application. I just know that the, basically, when you see the advances in image processing, for example, mm-hmm. it's right. it's it's really good, and uh, you know, and it helped other applications as well, or in natural language processing. You know, they're ma- making mm-hmm. like really like awesome and cool applications that we use every day, right? Yeah, that that's. I was just trying to say that we we should probably try to reach that level. Mm-hmm. And the way to do that is just to use the data more. Mm-hmm. Uh, to yeah. use the data more for yeah. more specific applications. But yeah, 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 I cannot think of like something specific. Because mm-hmm. I mean, really the data is already available. It's not like this is data they would have to go and, and find. Yeah, especially with the electronic health systems, you know, they mm-hmm. they have all the data recorded, so yeah. it's easy to mm-hmm. definitely easy to find. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, I think at this point, most of us have sort of just given in to the idea that all of our data is somewhere. 
on the internet, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, whether it's our healthcare data, our personal data, whatever. You know, I think that's just the world that we live in. Um, what do you say to people who are, you know, either like maybe they're anti artificial intelligence or anti machine learning or even like anti data, if that's the way to put it? Because, yeah. you know, I do hear people every now and then saying, like, oh, you know, the the government's got all my data and, and whatever, um, you know, I'm not sure, like, who cares, right? But um, what's what's your opinion on that? Is there a point where it's bad, where any of this stuff is bad or overdoing it? I don't know. Yeah. Free question. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, definitely. I think, and definitely the privacy is a concern, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I do understand when people, not, not like when they are concerned about data or their, their data being used and all that. Uh, however, you know, by by having this data, I think there should be a balance. That, that's the short answer, right? Mm-hmm. There should be a balance that respects people's privacy and they should know like what part of their data that is going to be collected and then used and, and so on. Uh, but at, at the same time, if you're totally like against any data or any you know personal data used uh, to be used to you know for like any machine learning uh, applications, I think it's just my argument is you know look at all these luxury things mm-hmm. that we are using you know mm-hmm. uh, audio yeah. recognition for example mm-hmm. uh, on your phone you know people are using all these devices you know Siri and Alexa mm-hmm. and Right. And all the translation, you know, if you're learning, especially since we are on this, you know, podcast. So if you're Mm -hmm. like learning a language, you know, translation uh, has significantly improved because of, you know, using data and designing designing more algorithms that that are... No question. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And personalization, yeah, is, uh, you know, uh, has its advantages and its disadvantages for sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Because you know it's good, so when you use any 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 platform, it will recommend or give you things that are more relevant to you. Mm-hmm. That's that's a convenient thing when you go you know shopping online when you do right yeah, yeah exactly or yeah. watch movies you know you don't need to spend a lot of time you will see mm-hmm. s- stuff that you are interested in. Right. But at the same time, I see the negative uh, or or side effect. You know when you. Mm-hmm when you are browsing for example YouTube let's say and then you are like in, in this loop when where it only recommends you know similar stuff to you but it's in a, in a way I think we 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 talked about that like uh, I think we, we've definitely <laughs> chatted about this before yeah, the algorithms exactly and, yeah. and also in terms of like being limited in terms of the information you receive right uh, mm-hmm. and yeah that is definitely a side effect and it is it is a problem that they also work on which is called like exploration versus exploitation like knowing okay yeah. I'm very interested in this alright yeah <laughs> yalla tfadala that means like yep go ahead keep talking yeah yeah exactly X, so, go ahead yeah when you design uh, I think we got deep in without specifying that we are talking about recommender systems, mm-hmm. right? So we are talking about algorithms that are designed for recommender systems, which mm-hmm. is what, you know, rec- uh, is recommended for you when you browse any, like, movie platform. Mm-hmm. I don't want right. to advertise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, we can advertise. Or, you, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> well, when you're when you're on YouTube, when you're on Instagram, when you're on social media, when you're exactly. on anything, yeah, yeah Netflix, yeah. whatever, we can, yeah, exactly. Or uh, we, we can say those names, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just joking, but yes. Yeah. So when you're all like shopping on Amazon, mm-hmm. here's, yep. here's another one. <laughs> yep. Amazon, Amazon's the one that they pretty much control everything at this point. So they're the only one that's <laughs> definitely been listening to this conversation somehow, right? One of Jeff Bezos' nerds is somewhere locked away, or probably one of his machines is locked away listening to this as we record it, even though no one's listening to the podcast episode yet. But, um, okay, go yeah. on. Yeah, so... The uh, the term that we mentioned, which is exploration versus exploitation. Mm-hmm. So exploitation, exploit means okay. I'm not. Yeah, you should but, give a definition, Sean, instead of me. But <laughs> it means that you're using, right? You, mm-hmm. you use yeah. the thing you have, right? Taking advantage, take, really, taking of something. Advantage. Yeah, to take advantage of something. Exactly. So taking advantage of the thing that I know that you will be interested in, based mm-hmm. on the algorithm. Yeah. Algorithm knows that you are interested in this mm-hmm. versus exploring other options that I mm-hmm. don't know or I even in some cases I even know that you might be not interested in this but I'm just showing you other options I'm showing you a variety uh, of options yeah. mm-hmm. so I'm uh, exploring or mm-hmm. you know uh, giving you the option letting to letting you explore yeah, yeah. explore mm-hmm. more versus just showing you what I know that you're 90 percent yeah. i'm a 90 i'm a 90 percent for that yeah, you, yeah you're gonna like these movies you know yeah exactly so mm-hmm. yeah just you know give you a variety in you know in a short term just give you a variety while recom- recommend you the items that i know you would be interested in mm-hmm. so okay. yeah that's a problem in in, in recommender system yeah and, and what makes you say it's a problem no, uh, when I say a problem, it's like a thing that they work on. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. yeah. Yeah, I was going to say that it is a problem, just like the exploitation, because, yeah. well, am, am I correct to say that that exploitation is used a lot more than exploration? In, in the, like, for example, classical uh, recommender systems algorithm, they will only know the exploitation, basically. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know about practice. I don't know about you know how companies use these algorithms. Mm-hmm. But I would say, in the past, they were, when they started the recommendation, it was you know probably like improving businesses and making a, you know big difference. Yeah. So they were probably yeah like oh yeah this is cool let's you know recommend to people what they uh, what they care about right. Yeah. But now. Um, you, they realize that okay, this is people want to also like explore. We are limiting people in, in loops, in, especially in some applications, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's not about which one is you used more. It depends on uh, where are you using it and how are you using it, basically. Mm-hmm. And usually, if we are talking technical, when you design algorithm, you can you can focus on whatever you want. Mm-hmm. You can say that, okay, I want to give this more weight than this. Mm-hmm. You have the option or balance them. Hmm. Okay, so there, there, there can be a mix of exploration and exploitation. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Okay, very interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, I see that as, we've talked about this before, how I see that as one of the biggest challenges in our society is just all of our algorithms on social media and all these other mm-hmm. media platforms giving us as individuals the same type of content or content from the same sources 
whereas someone who has clicked on other things before will get things from a totally opposite source always. Uh, and it's created sort of a, a lot of political polarization mm-hmm. anyway. Um, and so that's one of the issues that I have with the modern world that we live in and the media in it. But, um, okay. And do you know, I mean, I guess, do you know anything about what companies, um, well, how things are going to be moving forward in terms of this, in terms of exploitation? <laughs> Um, I honestly, I'm not the right person to be asked this mm-hmm, because, sure, yeah. yeah, it's. Um, I'm sure com- companies they they try to have more open source things. They they mm-hmm. show how to. Um, how their algorithms work basically, mm-hmm. and they have seen some examples. Let's say one ex- one of the examples I I, I saw was like in, uh, the New York Times when they recommend their articles. Because mm-hmm. this is important, right? Articles, you know, depends on your interest, depends on... Yeah. Because you're going to receive, you know, certain knowledge from them. Right, right. Certain mm-hmm. news as yeah. well. Yeah, they have an open plugin. They talk about that they use, basically, uh, an explo- uh, exploitation algorithm that mm-hmm. balances uh, both. Mm-hmm. But other than that, if the company is not anou- announcing, it's, it's really hard to... Um, tell what they are using or what they focus on like in general as, mm-hmm. a, as a trend mm-hmm. but I think in general there are some technical trend, trends companies use to, to use certain type of algorithms and they use now they use different kind of algorithms mm-hmm. uh, but yeah in terms of their focus or their business objective or you know how they want to um uh, but I know, like for example, th- this is probably worth mentioning. I know there is a trend with explainable recommendation. Mm-hmm. Uh, explainable recommendation. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Which basically, and I have seen some studies and companies talking about that. Um, basically, they try to explain the recommendation. Why am I recommending this to you? Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. And I, Keep talking. I'm just going to turn on the light here. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Basically, yeah. So they try to explain the recommendation because this will result in user satisfaction mm. the user will be happier and more convinced and it's like more like uh, you know transparency mm-hmm. yeah if there is an explanation if there's it. an explanation like I'm mm-hmm. explaining this to you because of that like because mm-hmm. you expressed interest in that or you clicked on that or something mm-hmm. I, I don't know to, to, to some level mm-hmm. to what extent they can explain it but yeah. Uh, these are some examples, right? Okay. So that is also another thing that mm-hmm. companies are moving toward, to, uh, towards. Okay. And in general, explainable machine learning. Mm-hmm. And this is important because if you are in a business and you want, you want to use a machine learning algorithm that you know you don't know how the algorithm works, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Yeah, you need to explain it to. Uh, stakeholders to mm-hmm. convince them that okay I have to use this yeah. algorithm uh-huh. or, or we can use this algorithm because the algorithm is making um, a decision or decisions based on XYZ yeah. right versus just it's a black box mm-hmm. Th- this is the, just the short term like they are trying to move machine learning algorithms from black boxes to 
hopefully white boxes, but it could be like gray boxes, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. you cannot see, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm sorry, now when you say black box and white box and gray box, you know, for the listeners, yeah. what, what do you mean by the term black box? Uh, black box is like something you don't understand how, how it works. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and then white box you yeah, understand white box everything. You understand everything about it. Gray box. Gray box. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's a term that's. But I get English. what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but gray box. Gray, I yeah. understand it somehow. Yeah. And I, the, yeah. I'm like in the gray box with pretty much all of this stuff related yeah. to AI and yeah. and um and data science and machine learning. But yeah. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Well, it seems to me that that's a more fair way to do it. Like in general, to. I guess what I'm trying to say is having some sort of an explanation for things is better than just total black box or total yeah. exploitation, if I'm the, using those. Yeah, I think that's that's probably a, like yeah. a separate... That was a previous <laughs> subject, yeah. See, this is, this is why I'm in the gray box area, because I'm like <laughs> thinking that two things are the same when they're just not, but yeah. okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, maybe I guess to... To finish things off, since we've been chatting for a while, um, yeah, I think we, we've almost hit the two-hour mark, really. Oh um, wow! <laughs> yeah. What? Um, well, what are your personal goals for the future regarding data science, machine learning, AI? Uh, yeah. So basically. I really enjoyed doing research, learning mm-hmm. about the theoretical stuff and, you know, doing like more fundamental research. Mm-hmm. And right now I want to basically uh, focus on the applied things, mm-hmm. be more, you know, um, applied scientists mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. they like, or like applied machine learning scientists like, mm-hmm. or data scientists. Mm-hmm. And just, yeah, you know, uh, ha- produce like some cool uh, products that mm-hmm. uses data science, like using data science to produce some cool products yep. mm-hmm. uh, that learns from data. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, because there are some like big differences between that. And th- that's one of the main, you know, differences between being uh, a researcher in academia or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, work in like business right. uh, cases. Mm-hmm. And you feel at this point that you do want to work in business. You want to work, you know, with a, a company using AI, using using data. I mean, you mentioned healthcare. You know, do you think you're you're only going to focus on the healthcare sector, or are you open to working in all sorts of different? Uh, yeah, I think I think um, I'm not strict to only working in the healthcare. Um, I think it, it really just depends on. Uh, to me, it depends on the application for sure, the, the final objective, mm-hmm. but also what leads to it. What are the tools that you, you are using? The, the nerdy stuff, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so that that's, yeah, just in general. I think there are core applications in healthcare and in business in general. Mm-hmm. And that's also another goal of mine to learn more about, about the business side of machine learning because mm-hmm. th- that's a whole new world. Uh, or okay. a whole yeah. uh, another world, not new world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. Well, yeah. well to me, but mm-hmm. yeah. So basically, yeah, just learn about that because machine learning in production is very different, mm-hmm. uh, and in business, in in uh, particular, and and I'm very excited and eager to mm-hmm. explore that world. Excellent, man. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I, I wish you the absolute best of luck in it. Yeah, thank and, you so um, much. And oh, and then I guess just one last question, though, just as a total way to wrap things up. So, <laughs> what's the final piece of advice or the summary of the advice that you would give for people who are looking to get a PhD, either in the U.S. or any other, you know, in any other country that's not their home country? And then any advice for people interested in studying or using data science? Ooh. Well, the first part, I would say before you get your PhD, because I know culturally, in, in most cultures, it's always encouraged mm -hmm. to, you know, get your, your you know, higher degree. Right. Uh, yeah. It's always looked at, okay, it's a good thing, it's a good achievement. And I think it is, but I think it's a long journey. And I think it's not always the right choice, mm. to, to put it. Okay. In a mild way. Yeah, okay. And actually, <laughs> why, why is it not always the right choice? Uh, you have to basically answer the question, why do you want to do it? Why, mm -hmm. why is it a good choice? How is it advancing your you know, uh, career objective and your, your goals in general? Mm -hmm. if, if you don't have answers to those, then you're basically just, you just want to do your PhD for the sake of it. Yeah. And I think... Personally, I think that's a very big mistake mm -hmm. <laughs> because it's, it's a long, a long time, and mm -hmm. uh, it's it's a good thing. It's it's a rewarding uh, mm -hmm. achievement for sure, but um, that's not enough to to do it. Basically, mm -hmm. yeah, you have to basically know why why you want to do it, and then also just yeah, do enough research to what you want to do in terms of you know major and like even specific more specifics what area you want to work on and why mm -hmm. the more you know i know it's hard to plan for the future and i'm really bad with right. that personally mm -hmm. but i think if you have a, you know at least a semi-clear vision about how is getting a phd helping you or, mm -hmm. or you know uh good for you then yeah for sure mm -hmm. that's my advice yeah so the summary is to understand why you want to do it before you just jump into it. Yeah. Because it's not going to be an easy process. Exactly, yeah. And mm -hmm. the, what was the second part? Just about data science, if you have any advice for people. Yeah, for data science, uh, data science is, is uh, definitely a hot uh, topic right now. It has mm -hmm. a, a big market. Yeah. So definitely it's a chance. But I would say, you know, um, also like if you are passionate about, you know, drawing insights from things, mm -hmm. <laughs> then yeah, then yeah, look into data science could be cool for you mm -hmm. because data science is what I like about uh, data science is that it's very general. Mm -hmm. So that's true. Yeah, yeah, it's very general. Then you, you have to have some business insights. You have to have some, you have to be, you know, uh, nailed in math you have mm -hmm. to be so yeah. just so many things if you enjoy that kind of thing then I think yeah definitely I don't I don't have a specific advice advice for people who wants to get into data science but ju that's just I'm just highlighting the the, be the beauty of it yeah so if you like that then yeah sure if you're the type of person who likes to learn things from from information or from data <laughs> if you like to do some research then data science could be for you yeah definitely and we know it's a hot growing field. So, yeah, it definitely has a good market right now. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. Well, Habibi, should we call it an evening? 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that was. Uh, thank you so much, and yeah, it, it's been a fun chat. Yeah, and, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, we really appreciate it. So, ladies and gentlemen, Doctor Faisal Al Mutairi. Shukran. Shukran Allah. Muchas gracias. Muchas gracias a ti, Doctor. All right. Thank you, talkers. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for listening, talkers. Remember that Keep Talking is the best platform for you 